and we'll continue our series when we have to choose on page 19. And if you need some notes, Larry has some. And just a few things that are coming up. I encourage you, especially in the fall, really if you could make a habit of doing it all the time, it would be great, but especially as we approach the fall, because the fall begins pretty much everything. Everything restarts. The summer is a lull, really, in our program. I say in our newcomer's orientation material, I actually have the phrase, the summer is useless, okay? And it is useless for ministry purposes almost because schedules are all different and people are on vacations and all that. So back to school time is back to church time as well. And that's why we really get things going in earnest in the fall. So a number of things uh, happen every September and October. So keep an eye on the, the program with the announcements in it. But tomorrow's our Labor Day picnic at noon at Lake Erie Metro Park. And it's $5 per vehicle to get in if you don't have the, the sticker for that. The church provides the main dish. We ask you, each family, to bring a side dish and a dessert and a, a two-liter beverage. Starts at noon. We'll have some uh, games for the kids. We have our own uh, pavilion reserved for that. Well, in addition to the pavilion, we're going to have a few canopies set up out there to provide as much shade as we can. We're hoping we'll have sun to make that necessary uh, tomorrow. Uh, but also bear in mind that we are next to the lake, and that uh, brings the temperature down just a bit. So I don't know what the temperature is supposed to be tomorrow, but it will be cooler than that at the lake. So bear that in mind as you uh, decide what you're going to wear. But Labor Day picnic is tomorrow, this coming Thursday. This Thursday from 1.30 to 7.30 is a blood drive, Red Cross blood drive. And we have a few slots left on the sign-up sheet between 1.30 and 7.30 that we would like to get filled in. So we have the sheet for that. And Peggy has the sheet for that. And like we did last week, we passed this around uh, going starting over here. We'll do that again. It worked okay last, last week. So if you were here last week and you already saw that, then forgive us for the hassle. But we want to make sure that gets under the nose of everybody. It's our last time to do that. And this Thursday is the blood drive itself. So if you haven't signed up and you can donate blood and perhaps save someone's life, so it is uh, important stuff, if you can do it, then can please consider doing that uh, this coming Thursday. So that sheet will go around, and then it will go to Ed Martin. Ed will pick it up, and then we'll turn it into the Red Cross folks and uh, let them know who has signed up under what slots. And then if you could show up at that time on Thursday, that'd be great. Uh, so we've got that going on. Now, with regard to this class and this material, there's more paper at the end of your notebook than you have to worry about because uh, beginning in the late 20s, um, I forget what page it is, but there's an appendix. And a lot of the a number of pages are appendices. So we don't have as many pages to go as it, as it seems. But we still do have several. So we're going to try to finish that over the next few weeks but it's going to get a little bit choppy, unfortunately, because next week during this hour, we're going to have a representative from Bethany Christian Services here. Missy Parker will be here, and she will take the, uh, this, this slot to talk about what they do to help churches uh, engage in orphan care. 
And there are a number of things that churches and individuals can do short of full adoption or becoming foster parents. Those are things that they do. She'll talk about that. But there are lots of things short of that that we can do to help uh, folks find uh, homes or those who don't have homes uh, help them in that transition. So she'll be here next week. So I encourage you to be here. She's a very engaging gal. Bethany has quite a ministry. I enjoyed very much the hour and a half that I was able to spend talking to her about what they, what they do and how we might be able to partner with them. But that means we won't be going through this material next Sunday because Missy will, will be here. And then two weeks from today, we won't be going through this material because I won't be here. Uh, so I'll be at a church in Rockford, Illinois, uh, that weekend, Saturday and Sunday. So if you think of it, you can pray for me traveling there and ministry there. But it means I won't be here. Uh, and we will have our missionary uh, to uh, an unnamed country, uh, a restricted access country. Uh, but Joel Compton is going to be with us two weeks from today. And so he'll be ministering in this, this hour. And you'll enjoy Joel very much. And we support him. And you've heard, those that have been around for a while have heard from him in the past, He's a very engaging guy and, uh, and a good guy, and they're doing a good work. So we'll be, uh, you'll be happy to get an update from him. So three weeks from today is when I'll be back for us to pick this up again, and then on the, the, the 29th, and then into October, just as few weeks as we can to finish this off and then move on to a new series, okay? So that's roughly what's coming up. We're going to have a few weeks where we're going to be interrupted on this series, so thank you for your patience in advance with that. But we pick up today on page 19 living by the book. So as we try to make decisions that are honoring to God, we've begun to show that those decisions are going to have to be made consistent with the precepts and principles that God has outlined in Scripture. It is the Bible where God has given us His will, His revealed, His moral will. So if I want to make choices that honor God, I have to know God's will. And his will is contained in a book. But that means I have to read the book, study the book, and interpret it properly before I can make application of it to the choices that I make. So that's where we've been, and we're looking at how then to use the book, the Bible, in an effective way and in a way then that allows us to make those kinds of choices. And that brings us to page 19, living by the book. We've seen that God has made known his desire, that is, his moral will in his word, the Bible. His desire is that we, one, participate in his purpose, and two, reflect his character. We saw way back in session two that pursuing God's purpose requires us to make life decisions about career and marriage and where we're going to be located and so on, but to make those in a way that intentionally seeks to advance the biblical mission. And that's what Appendix A is about explaining what the biblical mission is. I did that briefly uh, when we took a look at Appendix A several weeks ago. If you were not here for that, you can listen to prior lessons on our website. But I encourage you to take a look at that. I mean, in a nutshell, we're saying that if I'm going to make decisions that please God, I have to make decisions that consciously and intentionally seek to advance the purpose that He has for me. And that purpose is, yes, to bring Him glory, but more specifically, bring Him glory by advancing His mission in the world. That mission is centered upon His church and you finding your place in His church in order for it to advance. 
That's what Appendix A is about, and I encourage you to go and, and read that if you, if you haven't. But the middle of that paragraph, however, God's desire for us extends beyond the big decisions to the everyday small stuff as well, because in all of these we must choose what best displays the glory of God, that is, His character, and thus pleases Him. If you're a true Christian, not just a professing Christian, but a real one, then you desire to please God with your life. But because we live in a fallen world, pursuit of that goal can seem quite complicated. And you might even, you can omit seem. It is quite complicated. Now, what, do you see what we're saying there? Here we are as Christians, true Christians, not just professing Christians. We want to please God with our lives if we are that. But doing that is complicated by the fact that God has placed us in an arena to please Him. That is fallen. That is sinful. We're surrounded by sinners. We're surrounded by the effects of fallenness. We still individually struggle with sin. So we contribute to that fallenness. And so all of that means this desire of ours to please God with our lives is complicated by that sin, by that fallenness. I'm called and you're called to make choices that honor God in that environment. And so that's what we mean in that second paragraph. This apparent difficulty has caused many, though, to neglect their responsibility to always choose in light of God's purpose and character. Now, here's what I'm saying there. Okay, it does get complicated. Okay, it means I have to step back and I have to think consciously now, should I spend my time doing this, whatever it is? And I don't mean, when I make that decision, is it just explicitly sinful? I mean making a decision about whether or not it's profitable. Is this a proper use of my time given the mission that God's given me? And I have to and you have to make decisions about this. Should I spend my time doing this? Should I spend my money doing this? Should I use my talents? These are all the resources that God has entrusted to us for His purposes. I have to ask myself, am I using them intentionally and consciously for His purposes or for mine? Even if mine are not inherently or obviously sinful, they may be more diversionary. I'm convinced that, that most Christians go through their lives not engaged in inherent and obvious sin, but in diversionary activities. Things that divert them from what God has called us to. So I have to make those kinds of decisions all the time, but it gets, it gets hard. It's not obvious all the time. And especially living in a fallen world and the array of choices and all of the gray areas that come from the black and white. Did you all hear what I said? You have to have black and white before you can have gray. So before you go to this is a gray area, the first thing you should do is determine what's black and what's white, what's right and what's wrong. Then you can see now how they fit together. But it does get complicated. And what that's caused some people to do is just sort of throw up their hands and say, you know, we can't, I can't know that. I can't do that. And that's abdicating, friends, our responsibility. We still go through that work. We still go through that mental energy to intentionally and consciously make decisions that are honoring to God because they are done to advance his, his mission. The proper response is not to throw up our hands and abdicate, but rather, as we say, to develop an approach to decision-making that will honor the Lord. 
So this session will look at how to use the Bible to make worry-free choices in everyday life. So let's first remind ourselves of the problem that we have in making these decisions because we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken, fallen world. Sin has affected everything. It affects our health, our relationships, our pleasures, our sorrows. Indeed, there's nothing in your life that's not affected in some way by sin. So just think about that for a moment. There's nothing in your life that's not in some way, either because you're a sinner or because you're surrounded by sin or you live in a world that's cursed because of the fall. There's not anything in your life that is not in some way affected by sin. (laughs) Boy, we really need a rescue, don't we? If that statement's true, we really need a rescue, a deliverance. We really need to be saved from this. So if you really believe a statement like that, you could never believe the nonsense that says, I can work my way to God. You are in desperate need, and I am in desperate need of the grace of God, but thanks be to God, that's what the gospel is all about. So sin is much more extensive, sin is much more uh, heinous than we tend to think, and it's it's affected everything. But when we come to Christ for salvation, our relationship with this world that is fallen drastically changes. So here I am now, in the words of one song, eternity stranded in time. I've got, I'm a person who has eternal life. And I have adopted eternal values. But I live in time. And I live in a fallen world, and there's a disconnect. And that's why a guy like Peter writes a book like First Peter that says you are foreigners and strangers. So that's where I am. That's where you are. That's the, that's the realm in which we have to make these choices. Because we have come to Christ, we are now marching to the beat of this different drummer. And we are, and we are being made increasingly holy. Which means, here's what being increasingly holy means. You're more like Jesus and you're less like the world. So the problem doesn't get easier, it actually gets harder. Because you're less like the world. And you're surrounded with, by the world. And all of its fallenness. So as holiness progresses, then this tension increases. Because I recognize things that are different about me and about the world and about our value system that I didn't recognize before. And progressively I do so. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays the night before he is crucified. And it is the Lord's Prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. It's not the one you're thinking of, our Father in heaven. This is the prayer the Lord prayed. The other one is a prayer he gave to his disciples to pray. But this is when he prayed. And he begins, Father, my hour has come. Restore to me now the glory that I had with you from before time began. I mean, you, you just ought to go and read John 7. I mean, it's amazing. Here is the God-man knowing what is happening fully. And he is praying to the Father the time has come. 
And when he prays that, he prays for himself, restore to me the glory that I had with you. And then he starts to pray for those who will follow him. Those who are already following him, in particular the now 11, or soon to be 11, and those who will follow me, he says, Father, because of their message. That would be you and me. He prayed, Jesus prays for us the night before he dies. And in that, he says, they're in the world, but they are not of the world. And the world hates them because it first hated me. So Jesus is bringing this into stark relief that they're with me and then there's the world and they're a minority in the world. They are these strangers and these aliens. And then in verse 17 of this prayer, Jesus says, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And when he says sanctify them, that means make them holy. That's what that word is, make holy. Make different. Make separate. Make them holy, make them separate, make them sanctified. Do so by your truth, and your word is truth. So that being the case, that we're in the world, says Jesus, but not of the world, creates this real tension for us as strangers and aliens trying to make decisions that are pleasing to God. So we have to have a decent handle on what that means. What is my relationship to the world now that I've been called out of it and to God in salvation? And there are four possible ways, we say in the notes, that people can relate to the fallen world. One is to see themselves as in the world and of the world. So both in it and of it. In, preposition, that gives you a location, this is where I am. Of, indicating derivation, I just like to say that word. Or source. Where do my, from where do my values come? And if you're, if you're unsaved, if you're not a believer, your values come from the value system of the world. You're in it and you're of it. You're located in it. And you swim in it. You breathe its air. It's what your life is. In and of the world. Now whose approach is that? That's the unbeliever's approach. There's a blank there, so if you haven't fallen asleep yet, you have a pen and you're writing unbelievers in the blank there. That's the unbeliever's approach. In the world and of the world. That's your common pagan, your everyday run-of-the-mill non-Christian, both in it and of it. But here's a second attempt to navigate this relationship between the two, to see yourself as not in and not of. So, not of. My values, at least supposedly, are not derived from the world. They come from a different source. They They come from God. So I'm not of the world, but I'm also not in the world. That is, I have isolated myself from the world. I've taken myself away from interaction with the world and worldlings. Who does that? 
So this is monasticism, and it is the monastic approach. Monks, the Amish. But really, often, it is the approach that many of us have taken in our Christian lives. We've said, okay, the world is tainted, so I'm going to separate myself physically from the world. And so we'll create our own little clutches of, of fellowship for ourselves to keep us from being tainted by, by the world. That's what we try to do. And you, you can think in your mind right now of the ways we do this. And I'm almost afraid to mention some of them because I'll end up... Uh, but let me just say... <laughs> I'm not, you know, a fool is never afraid enough. <laughs> so I'm afraid, but I'm also a fool, okay? And so fools rush in where angels fear to tread, so here I go. Um, we at our church have never defined, nor will we, the way to educate your children other than God makes very clear in Scripture that it is parents' responsibility to oversee the education of their children. Parents may choose to delegate portions of that, but they can't abdicate it. So, you may choose to delegate portions of your children's education to a public school, or to a Montessori, or to a private school, or you may homeschool. Now, we have, for a period of time, we homeschooled our children. And our children now go to a Christian school. But there are, there are all these options. And as parents, we have to make those before God. But it is our responsibility to make sure our children are educated and educated in the precepts and principles of God's Word. And if we partner with someone to, to delegate aspects of that, we still are responsible, even a Christian school. Now, when we were homeschooling our kids, and I don't know, I don't know who all is homeschooling, in here, but when we were homeschooling our kids, I used to tell Kim, look, when you go to the homeschooling conventions and all of that stuff, just make clear that we're doing this because it fits with our objectives as a family right now, not because we believe this is the only way that you can educate your children. So make sure that that's clear. Make sure that that's clear to any of the ladies in the church who happen to be homeschooling with you. We're doing this. We think it's a good thing. It's worked very well for us at this point in our lives, but it may change at some point in the future. And in fact, it did change. As the math got harder and all of that, we delegated, okay? But we made it clear. And as Kim would attend those things and we would go to the websites and all that stuff, it was clear that there is a large segment, and I'm just going to be very straight with you, there is a large segment of the homeschooling movement that is really devoted to isolating itself from the rest of the society. And, and we need to be very careful, very careful about that. Because God has not, I repeat, God has not called us to isolate ourselves from the culture. As a matter of fact, if we do that, then we cannot fulfill the mission that he's called us to. We cannot. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the whole chapter is dealing with a person in the church in Corinth who's involved in open and obvious sin. 
As a matter of fact, it is, uh, it is, it is so open and obvious and heinous that Paul says this person's engaged in a type of sin that's not even accepted among the pagans. And so Paul, who wrote that, is telling the church, you have to deal with this because this person names the name of Christ, but they're involved in an incestuous relationship. And you're tolerating that, and that harms the name of Christ. You must deal with this. And you must not associate with this person who is doing this. And then Paul adds a parenthesis and says, I'm not at all speaking of the people of this world. For in order not to associate with them, you would have to leave this world. So he's making very clear that this world is the place where we carry out our ministry. And we are going to be and must be surrounded by sinful people and the fallenness of the world. And in fact, our mission is to reach those people, right? But I can't do that if my life's objective is to isolate myself from them. And I will say further, while I'm in trouble probably with some number of folk, might as well go the whole route. Make it worthwhile. If you're going to get stoned, make it worth your while, okay? But it also often, very often, involves a false definition of what sin is, what fallenness is. Because in those, in those uh, societies, those subcultures, the definition of sin is often the worldly things that people do. So there are, those people are involved in drugs, those people are involved in all sorts of activity that we don't want to be involved in, obviously. And we want to make sure that that taint do doesn't rub off on us so we're not going to rub shoulders with them. But do you understand that that is a very inadequate definition of sin? And what you really do is then carry other kinds of sins into your subculture? But we think we're purer than we are because we don't do their stuff? We don't, we don't shoot each other. We just stab each other in the back. We just gossip and slander and are jealous and all the stuff that sinners do. So we wind up with a, with a feeling of comfort that we have escaped the taint of the world when in fact worldliness is because sinners are and we are sinners. And so we carry our own form of worldliness with us. So does everybody get the idea that I'm not in favor of the isolationist approach? And forget what I'm in favor of. I am absolutely convinced that God does not teach the isolationist, monastic, Amish, and sometimes approach we take. So that's one way, not in and not of. But the truth is we're in. We're in the world. And we're going to have to rub shoulders with the world if we're going to carry out the mission that Jesus gave us. And that means you are going to have to rub shoulders with people that are uncomfortable for you. So just yesterday, and I'm going to send this uh, prayer request out when I have the funeral arrangements, but just yesterday morning, I got a call at uh, 7.15. I was on my way to a counseling meeting, and I got a call from my nephew, who many of you know, Justin my nephew, whom my wife and I uh, raised uh, from fifth grade on through high school. And Justin called me weeping 
because he had been staying at his mother's place and his mother died. So his mother, my oldest brother's ex-wife, died last night, early Saturday morning. She died of a drug overdose. This is the environment that they came out of. This is the environment that they've been exposed to, continue to be exposed to, that they have struggled with. This has been part of my life for years. And I get this call, and her name is Mickey, and and Mickey has died. Mickey was 53. When I went over to her apartment in Lincoln Park, and the police are there, the police tell me, that within 24 hours, six people have OD'd on heroin. And they said that uh, there must be a bad batch of heroin. So somehow tainted with something that makes it more potent and thus more deadly, I guess. So they've had all these calls. Cousins start to show up. And as they show up, these are some young people that I had met years ago. My wife and I used to bring them to church. One of them came up to me. I, I didn't recognize him. He said, does your church still have an Awana program? We used to take this boy to Awana. But almost to a man and woman, all of them are involved in drugs somehow. One of the, one of the cousins was weeping, young lady weeping, said, I was just with her last night. And I told her over and over again, quote, don't overdo it. Now think about that. You're shooting heroin and you're saying don't overdo it. As if there's a right amount of heroin for somebody to take. Now I'm standing there and I am not in my world, right? I am not in my comfort zone. But it's a world that God has called me to for this period of time for whoever he's working on who needs what Jesus offers, who's willing to accept what Jesus offers. So there I am. And I can't say I can't be around you people, can I? And what I'm telling you, church, is you can't either. So, there are all kinds of, I mean, it is a mess. The fallen world's a wreck. And unless you get yanked out of your lethargy on that from time to time, and I mean myself with that, you know, I'm going off to breakfast to counsel with somebody, and then I get a call, and that just jerks me again out of my middle-class existence to see there is a whole other world out there where the effects of sin are very obvious and devastating and where the power of the gospel is desperately, desperately needed. And if we of all people say, those aren't our people, our objective is to make sure we create structures that keep them out and we don't rub shoulders with them, then we can't carry out the mission that Jesus has called us to. We can't. Not only can't we, we're being disobedient. Remember who Jesus hang, hung around with? It's, it's interesting. You know, Jesus, the, the crowd Jesus hang, hung around with is a crowd that we would condemn others for hanging around with for mission purposes. 
just like who did. There were people who condemned Jesus for doing that, right? Who were the people who did that? The church folk. The religious people who had separated themselves from those kind. So not in the world and not of the world. So pray for Justin. Pray for Matthew. And uh, they're make, the funeral arrangements are being made. I'll send a, a note around about that. I will, it appears I will be doing the funeral for Mickey in the next few days. So pray about that. A third approach to our relationship with the world is to be not in the world but of the world. Now what is that? Now again, not in means physically remove yourself, but of means the source of your values still comes from the world. Now who's that? Who removes themselves on the one hand but still has their values from? And this is what I call the common evangelical approach. Most Christians. Because here's what we do. It's similar to what I said. We, we have our own things, our stuff we do, and we have a kind of parallel world of our own to the society. So we don't want to be around those people and what they do, so we'll create our own versions of the stuff they do. So you got, you got fashion shows, we got Christian fashion shows. You got talk shows, we got Christian talk shows. You got novels, we got Christian novels. Anything you can do, we can do baptized. Anything you can do, we can do with Jesus mixed in. So we, we got our own separate stuff, but the values expressed in the stuff are still the world's values. You got rock bands, we got rock bands. And our rock bands are better than your rock bands. Actually, they're not. <laughs> now, you guys have heard me say, you're not making Christianity better, you're making rock and roll worse, okay? But nevertheless... But we got, we got better so because Jesus is kicked in. You got your concerts, we got our concerts. You got your on and on it goes. And we've got to ask ourselves, what is the source of our values constantly? So there's those approaches, and they're all obviously erroneous. The unbelievers approach, the monastic approach, the common evangelical approach. And then there is finally the biblical approach. To be in the world, but not of the world. And ask yourself in the box there, to which of those do you most readily relate? So there's the problem of living in a fallen world and how we relate to it. Secondly, then, there's the problem of finding God's will for our choices. We can take the accidental approach. That is, we'll just kind of stumble into God's will. As I go along in life, that as long as I do my devotions in the morning, as long as I seek to avoid obvious sin, something that's prohibited in the Bible, then I'll stumble into God's will. This is a person who does not live his or her life intentionally. So that's what we mean by accidental. You just stumble into it, you go through life, you pursue your stuff, you're not drinking, you're not carousing, you show up at church most of the time, you may give, you may do all these, these right things, and you'll stumble into the Lord's will. But there's no coherent framework by which decisions are made. They just live and let live and assume that if I'm not involved in obvious and open sin, then I'm pleasing to God in what I'm choosing to do. 
But that ignores the mission piece of it, right? The purpose. And am I intentionally making my decisions to advance the mission and the purpose? So accidentalism is one. Top of page 20. Mysticism is another false approach, the feeling approach to decision-making that I talked about several weeks ago. Mysticism is, as we've seen, a form of religious practice that seeks direct knowledge of God rather than an intellectual knowledge of Him. It's an attempt to experience God through the senses rather than through the mind, interacting with God's revelation in Scripture. And so this is somebody who is more feeling-oriented, takes a mystical approach. I just think God wants me to do this. What it, and that's how they make their decisions. Another one is pietism. We've saw previously, seen previously that that's a variety of Christian uh, Christianity that emphasizes personal experience. It can lead to, according to one author, inordinate subjectivism and emotionalism and discourage careful study and scholarship. And then there's legalism. Legalism is an approach to finding God's will that focuses almost entirely on rules. So legalists have lists of do's and don'ts that form God's will for their lives. They're comfortable when they keep the rules, uncomfortable when they do not. And oftentimes they judge their spirituality by whether or not they keep the rules. Hmm. Now, is it quiet in here or is that just because I can't hear anybody because of the air conditioning? But this is very easy to fall into that I'm keeping the rules, I'm doing the stuff like I mentioned earlier, I do my devotions, I come to church, I give my money, I have these lists of things that I do and things I stay away from. And then I judge my relationship with God and my spirituality based primarily, sometimes exclusively on that. Now, it is true, so let's go through this a bit. It is true that biblical behavior requires rules and standards. but not legalistic rules and standards that say my relationship with God is good because I do these things. But nevertheless, biblical behavior does indeed, we're going to see, require rules and standards. So to avoid legalism, because we don't want to be legalistic, some people say we don't need rules and standards, and that would be false as well. Biblical behavior requires that. How do we know? Well, there's the biblical pattern. One, God's law is divided into two general types of laws. There are apodictic laws and casuistic laws. And those, if you get nothing else out of coming to discovering God, you guys hear me say sometimes, what you want to get is one word you didn't know the definition of. And especially at least one word that your friends don't know the definition of. So that when you're losing an argument, you throw that word out there. It may be completely out of context. It may have nothing to do with what you're talking about. But next time you're losing an argument, you just say, ah, you are taking the apodictic route. And just enjoy their stunned silence for a moment as you walk away in triumph having won the argument, okay? Now, what are apodictic laws? Now, it says here that they are those that are are timeless. That's, That's actually not the best Uh, way to describe them. Perhaps the best way to describe them is that they are independent. They're independent of circumstances. Independent of circumstances. Apodictic. 
And these are laws like the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay? That's a independent of circumstances. You shall you shall not you shall not murder. That also is independent. That is always true that you shall not murder. Now, notice, if it said you shall not kill, that would be different. Because there actually is a time to kill. Uh, when the, God instituted capital punishment. But capital punishment is not murder. So they both wind up with someone who's dead, but one is murdering and another one is justice. And God defines that. So you shall not you shall not lie, you shall not steal, and so on. These are apodictic, independent of circumstances. But then there are the more uh, ubiquitous cases. Hey, there's a good one. You should use that sometime. More often, casuistic laws. And if you want to relate that, you could just you can see in the word casuistic case cases. These are case laws. These are dependent on time and circumstances. So these are the kinds of laws, standards you would have under certain conditions in certain cases, this is what I'll do and I won't do. And you see those in God's law all over the place. So as you're reading through the first part of your Bible, and especially the first several books of the first part of your Bible, the books of the law, you often find things like we have in Deuteronomy 22. You shall not see your countryman's ox or his sheep straying away and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly bring them back to your countrymen. If your countryman is not near you or if you do not know him, then you... Now, notice how it's always phrased. It's if this is the deal, if this is the case, then this is what you do. That's what casuistic laws are. In certain situations, in certain cases, this is what I'll do. And God's law is laid out that way. So, biblical behavior requires rules and standards, but if you look at number two, top of page 21, if you add to that the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, well-known and well-documented in Scripture, then this thing that is necessary for you to develop and me to develop rules and standards of behavior and develop case laws for ourselves as to what we will do and we won't do is complicated because there were people who had lots of rules and standards in Scripture, but they were hypocrites about it. And as you look at Jesus' interaction with those, those folks, it can look like, if you're not careful, he's condemning the idea that they had rules and standards. He was not. He was condemning their hypocrisy in those rules and standards. The Pharisees focused on rules, but they forgot the heart. They forgot that the mission was about more than lists and do's of do's and don'ts. The mission was about loving God with all that you have and serving Him. And Christ had strong words for the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, there's not only the hypocrisy that often goes with people who are sticklers for, for rules. Let's just be honest. That's often the case. Sin being what it is, sinners 
as we are, often when we have rules, which we must have, often our sinful hearts lead us into a hypocritical approach. We're not keeping the rules ourselves, but we try to act like we are, which is what the Pharisees did. But there's another problem with this, and I'll throw it, I'm going to lay it out there for you, and then we will continue it in three weeks. And that is this. The Pharisees not only were hypocritical, but they also sought to create rules and standards for other people. And this is a huge problem when we in our lives try to create case laws and rules and standards for things we will and we will not do in our decision-making, which we must do. But many of us are not content to simply make those rules for ourselves. We feel like we have to impose them on other people. And that's one of the other things that the Pharisees did. It wasn't just that they did these things or refrained from these things. Everybody else had to do them and refrain from them as well. That person that has to impose his or her rules on everybody else has been called this, the professional weaker brother. You ever heard that phrase? The professional weaker brother. I'll tell you who the professional weaker brother is, and then I really do have to stop because the nursery people will kill me if I do not. And after I say amen after the prayer, if you have kids in the nursery, go fetch them, please. The professional weaker brother is taken from what we are going to see on the next page, page 22 in three weeks. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and Romans 14. And you've read those passages, but in them it refers to one whose conscience is weak, one who is weaker than you in the faith, and you entertain the question of whether or not you should participate in a particular activity and whether you should or should not, according to those passages, has something to do with the effect that it will have on this weaker brother or sister. So that's where the weaker idea comes from. If you do this particular thing, is it going to have an ill effect on this weaker brother or sister? The professional weaker brother is somebody who's bought a badge theoretically, and, and, they, and they wear it, and they let you know all the stuff that offends them. Hey, I'm the weaker brother here, and when you do X, it offends me. Therefore, you shouldn't do that. That's the person who's made a career out of being the weaker brother. Now, here's one of the things about the weaker brother in Scripture. He didn't know he was the weaker brother. So if you applied for and got the job of weaker brother, then you're not the weaker brother of Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. Okay? But you've got people who do that. I've actually seen it with my own eyes. I'll give you one example, and then we're done. I saw years ago at a church picnic, not our church, someone in the church came to the picnic, had a boom box. So this is how long ago this was. Boom box. And they... We're setting up for this picnic, and they put their boombox out there, and they turned on a, a cassette tape, further dating this thing, and, they, and they're playing some, some music. And one of the, and it was, it was Christian music. 
you know, Christian band or something. And somebody there said, that offends me. Which also meant turn that off. So you see that here's a person who has set up standards for his or herself, but also feels comfortable imposing those on other people. And because we've seen and experienced the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the imposition of the Pharisees, what many people then do is say, I'm not getting into rules and standards. And that is a first-order mistake. The problem is not having rules and standards. The problem is seeking to impose your rules and standards on everybody else. You have to have them. I have to have them in order for us to intentionally make God-honoring decisions. But these are obstacles that keep us, keep many of us from doing them. So what we need to do is develop convictions. We'll talk about how to do that. Develop our own inventory of case laws. And then, by God's grace, live accordingly, okay? We'll talk about that in three weeks. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for allowing us to grapple with these issues. They are issues that are of great importance to us as we try to mimic your character in a fallen world. Lord, it is fraught with minefields. It's fraught with difficulty because of our own sin, because of the sin around us, because of the hypocrisy that we, that we do and the hypocrisy that we've seen, because of our, our tendency to judge others and thus impose our standards on others. All of these things have made it all the more difficult for us. So, Lord, we desperately, as always, need your aid. We ask you to help us in the coming weeks as we look at these matters. Help us to have open hearts. Help us to have clear minds as we see that we have to take the precepts and principles of your word and then apply those to the circumstances that you've called us to. Doing that in quorum Deo, before the face of God, in the presence of our God, without violating what Romans 14 says and judging others with what we do, but understanding that we all live or die before our one Lord. And so, Lord, help us to be able to do that. And in so doing, may we be a people who are striving every moment or every day to please you in the choices that we make. Go with us this week as we do that and grant us safety till next Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.